Well, good morning, Fisherville. It's good to be together uh, like this, our new normal for the time being. We look forward to getting back together as soon as the law allows. Uh, we do want to recognize today as the Lord's Day. We want to gather together and be mindful of the day we set apart for, for worship, even if we have to gather uh, in an unusual manner like this once again. Let's be called to worship um, with Psalm 139. You know, we start every service with a call to worship in order to remember that everything, and especially a service of worship, begins with God. He shaped us in our mother's womb. He breathed life into our lungs. He made us in his image, and he calls us to dwell on the beauty of these truths today as we gather. So hear the word of the Lord uh, from Psalm 139, a few verses here. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So church, wherever you are, let's sing together. to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. Oh, ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. To the Lord who wore all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires there have been? to the Lord. 
Father, I think about those verbs, those important verbs we just sang. Praise to the Lord God Almighty. Let the amen sound from your people again. And Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Father, we recognize that this was the reality when you created all things. In the Garden of Eden, your image bearers praised you as a good creator. They said amen to your creation. They sang hallelujah because you are a good God, a sovereign creator. But that song was lost was lost by our sin. And yet now it has been redeemed in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize this morning that to sing praise, to sing hallelujah, praise the Lord, to, to say amen is a mark of new creation. We pray that your spirit would empower us to do that faithfully this morning. Lord, we also want to pray for our mothers this morning. We thank you for this Mother's Day where we can show our gratitude for our mothers. Father, we come to you confessing that the gospel of your Son that gives us endless hope and peace went the route of a mother's womb. And the fact that the Son of God was conceived, the Son of God coming, that we might sing praise and amen to you this morning. The fact that he was conceived in the womb of a woman reminds us of the beauty of motherhood. And we thank you for our moms today. They are a grace gift to all of us. 
But we also recognize it's not an altogether happy day for everyone. For instance, we lift up the family of of Gene Cheatham, who was buried yesterday. There are those today who are grieving the loss of their mothers. We pray for your mercy on them. We lift up infertile couples. We pray for grace and peace and We pray for joy in the midst of that pain. We pray for couples who've miscarried. We pray your mercy on them, your peace on them. We pray for mothers with lost children that you would save their children. We pray for mothers who've lost their children that the supernatural peace of Christ would be on them. We pray for women with lost husbands that you would save their husbands. Women who've lost their husbands, we pray for your peace on them as they do life without their partner. We pray, Lord, for mothers who are estranged from their children. We pray for reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray for our foster moms today. Thank you for that wonderful ministry. And we pray for sustenance and grace for them in this time. Lord, we pray for women who have had abortions. We pray that they could recognize that there is forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. We pray for politicians who are pro-abortion. We even think of our own governor. Lord, we do not sin with our tongue when we speak about our governor. We are to honor and respect our governors and our presidents and our authorities over us. It would be wicked to speak ill, but we do pray for repentance. We pray that you would bring repentance to him and his stance on abortion and all politicians. We pray for mothers who are pursuing adoption. We pray for financial resources and opportunity. We pray that you would do that. We pray for our children that they would honor their parents and honor their mother and obey them. We pray for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We pray, Lord, that all the families represented in this church would praise our God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not love me first, I would refuse you still. 
but as I ran, but as I ran, my hellbound race, indifferent to the cross, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross, and I beheld God's thumb displayed, you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me, now all I know is grace, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah. I would. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life. song forever be my only boast is As um, Pastor Brian said, um, today is, is Mother's Day. We do want to celebrate and honor our mothers and the mother figures in our lives, those who are maybe perhaps spiritual mothers to many others. And Scripture affirms the essential and beautiful necessity of both biological and spiritual mothers. And we want to celebrate the good gift today. Moms that so often are the glue holding so many things together in the family. Words can't express the blessing and the countless graces of God given to a family through a mom that knows and loves God. It's also a time when some of us share a sense of pain, a sense of brokenness. Perhaps you're listening today, longing to be a mother, but that desire may still be unmet. Perhaps you're feeling invisible as a mom because thankless days run one to another. Or you find yourself isolated in the difficulties of adoption or foster care, or maybe you're carrying deep wounds from your own mother or with your children, or experiencing significant loss without a mother today to celebrate. Uh, scripture actually shows us a woman who experienced the brokenness of motherhood in a fallen world. In Genesis chapter 16, we see Hagar in the midst of what we would call today a, pri a crisis pregnancy. 
fleeing into the wilderness to escape abuse. But the angel of the Lord found her there in the wilderness. And as she encountered the presence of God, she called him, a Hebrew term that means the God who sees me. And so this morning we too declare <clears throat> we too declare this truth about God this morning. Though wherever you find yourself today, hear these words of comfort from uh, Isaiah 66. Um, God says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. So we want to take a moment to affirm the goodness of the gift of mom and to celebrate the gift of both our biological and spiritual mothers. Still others of us need to receive the comfort and the promises of God this more on this Mother's Day. And to remember that the Lord meets us uh, with both tenderness and strength. He indeed is the God who sees us.
day. And Lord, taste the day when my face shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a
Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers out there. I pray it will be a blessed and joyful, spirit-filled day for you, that you will feel honored by everyone who loves you. If you would turn your Bible to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Before we get into our message, the anatomy of a restoration, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to give us illumination on this text. Father of mercy, we thank You that we can sing Amen. We thank You that we can say declaratively, He is for You. He is for us in Jesus Christ. Thank You for that. And We pray, Lord, today that as we make our way through this text, you would meet each person where they are according to their real need. And may the grace of this text come to bear on our fallen condition. We need to hear a word from the living God today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. George McDonald, in his book, Rebuilding Your Broken World recounts the story of how as a child, one day he accidentally turned over a lamp and broke it. It was a cherished lamp. And he picked the broken lamp back up, put it on the table, but he turned it so that the the crack in the lamp could not be seen. Well, he began living with this increasing paranoia that he would be found out by his mom, and one day he was found out by his mom, and he immediately confessed what he had done. But what happened next, he says, informed the rest of his life, how his mother responded. He writes that she took it to the kitchen, glued the pieces so that they once more fit tightly together, and within a few hours returned the lamp to the table. The crack was always there, but the lamp was rebuilt, and it served its purpose for years. Broken worlds may always have cracks to remind us of the past. That's reality. But sometimes the grace of God is like the glue my mother used on her lamp. The bonded edges can become stronger than the original surface. This is such an instructive and hopeful word for all of us. And on this Mother's Day, the the 87% of mothers surveyed who at some point have cracked the lamp, so to speak, and live as a result with some form of mother's guilt. Well, the reality is all of us, mothers and non-mothers alike, have cracked the lamp. But God is in the business of rebuilding cracked lives. But as always, even though God is sovereign in His grace, effectual in His grace, throughout Scripture we see we are still responsible in the process And David teaches us today what this responsibility is. In essence, Psalm 51 is an anatomy 
of a restoration, which is seen all the more remarkable when you read the superscript of Psalm 51, which, by the way, were inspired. The, the superscripts in the Psalms are inspired as the text itself. And in the superscript, it says, notice, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, how would you like your sin blasted for everyone to, to see? We wouldn't even want that in a text or an email. But how would you like it to be inscripturated? In fact, it says, to the choir master. How would you like your sin to be put to music and sung in corporate worship and, and then to be read and meditated upon for the rest of history? That's Psalm 51 and David's sins. But actually, this is a celebration of mercy, a celebration of fixing the crack glimp, if you will. It's a celebration that we all need, no matter who's listening today. It's for those who think that once they've broken the lamp, it's all over. There's no hope. And there's a lot of people in the world like that. It's for those who even though they realize they've been forgiven for having cracked the lamp and hiding it, they still believe they are useless from here on out in the kingdom of God for people like that. It's for those who've never come to terms with the heinousness of sin and the resulting need for divine mercy. In fact, the latter can only be seen in light of the former. It's also for those who think they are too godly to fall. David was the consummate man of God, the man after God's own heart. And we read about his fall last week, right? And the week before that. It's for those. In fact, at this point, we know David has fallen. And we see this plea for pardon at the very beginning of Psalm 51. Notice in verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesed, according to your steadfast love. Blot, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, we saw last week that, that Nathan had told him, your sins have been taken away. But this is the process. David is writing out the process whereby this, this took place. And in verse 1, three different words are used to describe God's compassionate disposition to the repentant. Notice, mercy Steadfast love, that is God's covenantal faithfulness to his people, his hesed, and his abundant mercy. You could translate that great compassion. This is the sole ground for any approach to God by a sinner. James Montgomery Boyce says, We cannot come to God on the basis of his justice. Justice strikes us with fear. 
and causes us to hide from him. We are not drawn to God by his wisdom. Wisdom does not embolden us, though we stand in awe of it. Nor, no more does omniscience, omnipotence, or omnipresence. The only reason we dare come to God and dare hope for a solution to our sin problem is his mercy. And David uses three different words as well to speak of his sin problem. Notice in verse 1, he says, Blot out or remove my transgressions. Now, this word transgression, it refers to crossing a forbidden boundary with the idea that if you do, this is a serious rebellion. Maybe some of you have studied the life of, of Julius Caesar. And as long as this general remained north of the river Rubicon, he was at peace with the Roman Senate. But the moment he crossed the river, he was at war, a civil war with the Roman Senate. And he did. And the civil war resulted. And this is what David and every other person for that matter has done with God. We've crossed the boundary. We have transgressed the boundary of God's law and are, and are at war. That is our natural state with God. We're at war with him as a consequence. And he says in this text, blot out my transgression." The second word used to describe David's problem is seen in his request in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Again, a second word for his sin problem, iniquity. It means perversion and the depravity of his nature. And here he is saying, wash me. And wash me from my iniquity. That word washing comes from the law. Ceremonial, ritual, cleansing that would come through the sacrifice of the substitute. And then the third word is sin itself, which means to miss the mark, to fall short of the mark. And it's not a sometime thing. Notice in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sins is ever before me. So in verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. In verse 3, he says, and it's not a sometime thing, my sin is ever before me. And I want you to note this pronoun, my. It's used five times in the first three verses. My transgressions, verse 1. My iniquity, my sin, verse 2. Verse 3, my transgressions, my sin. And this is important for at least three reasons. First of all, note, no other Israelite is guilty of David's sin. David committed this sin. No other Israelite did that. And in this particular case, he stole a marginalized Hittite's wife. And then he killed this Hittite in cold blood by his conspiracy. This is David's sin alone. No one else can repent of David's sin. 
David knows nothing of critical race theory, which is an anti-Christ, sub-biblical, ungodly theory. This is David's sin. This past week, a video was uncovered, and it was a tragic, tragic video that, of something that had happened a couple of months ago where this 25-year-old African-American named Ahmaud Arbery was brutally gunned down by two wicked men. We don't know what the motivation behind it was. It doesn't matter. It was cold-blooded murder. Utterly wicked. And we pray for his family. We pray for the peace of Christ on his family. And we pray for justice on these two men. But no one else is guilty for their sin but these two men. David is speaking here of my sin. There's no notion that we sin by proxy. The, the emphasis in Scripture is on individual transgression and sin. Second reason this is important is that the Bible's concern is not the problems outside of us. Most of the time when you read the Scriptures, the people of God are doing life and walking by faith under oppressive, imperialistic governments. And yet the Scriptures never, or let's just say this, the Scriptures' emphasis is not on the corruption of the government, but on how the people of God are to walk godly in that government. Now, in this particular case, the government... The government was corrupt because the king had become corrupt for a time. But notice, the issue is not what's outside of us. It is what's inside of us. It's my sin that this is centering upon. Third, David here doesn't play the victim card. That's what you often hear today. Well, I know I messed up. I know I made a mistake, but it takes two to tango. Have you thought about what Bathsheba did? Again, my sin is ever before you. Maybe you remember the notorious Twinkie defense that was used by a man named Dan White, who in 1978 gunned down San Francisco's mayor and one of his associates. And so when he went to trial, he, ple he pleaded innocent uh, for his alleged, you know, charges based on diminished capacity. And here's what he said. He said the biochemical reactions in his brain had misfired because of too much junk food. And here's what's remarkable. Instead of charging him with murder, they decided to charge him with manslaughter. He only spent five years in prison for killing two men in cold blood. Can you imagine? Your honor... I OD'd on Twinkies. And the jury bought it. When we know that's insane, it's absolutely insane. But you need to remember that the next time you blame someone else for your behavior, when you blame someone else for your sin, David is not concerned about anyone else's sin here. He's concerned about his sin. It's hard to play victim when you recognize the object of our sin 
is ultimately God himself. Notice in verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now remember, back in 2 Samuel 11, in verse 27, here's what the Hebrew literally reads, the thing that David had done when he sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite was evil in the eyes of the Lord. I believe he's picking that up here in verse 4. I've done this evil in your sight against you and you only. But how can he say this? He actually stole a man's wife, and then he had the man murdered. So how can he say it was only against you that I've sinned? Well, sin is like treason. If you seek to overthrow your government, there will be people likely harmed or killed in the process, and that is egregious. But fundamentally, you will be charged with treason. That is the bigger crime. And in this particular case, all sin is cosmic treason. It's the attempt to overthrow the rule of a king who's given you everything. And that's why God, it says here, is justified. He is justified in his words, blameless in his judgment. In other words, he's right in his verdict against David. He's right in his verdict against us. And this treason wasn't new to David. It wasn't that he all of a sudden became this sinner when he had his affair, his fling with Bathsheba. Notice when we in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. This didn't just happen. I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. So David confesses here that the root cause of his sins that he's committed is that he was born conceived as a sinner. But he's not accusing his mother here. It's important for us to realize that. This isn't the Twinkie defense. The whole point here is personal accountability. And this is what we would call original sin. Sin marks us from our conception and birth. And it comes in the form of a motivationally twisted heart prior to any actual sins that we commit in the body. In other words, we don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The inner sinfulness is the root cause of all the actual sins that we commit. We have, a, in other words, a constitutional propensity to sin. And to make matters more bleak, notice in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Incidentally, there's this movement today that says you can have homosexual desires, and as long as you don't act on them, it's not sinful. Well, the problem with that is that God delights in truth in the inward being. So even our desires, if they do not comport with the law of God, are sinful desires. And the wages of sin is death. So this is bleak for all sinners. He desires truth in the inward being. No, it's not just the outward behavior that matters to God. 
It's even our inward motivations. But notice in the second part of verse 6, I think there's some good news here. For the repentant, he teaches us that God is going to give us wisdom in the secret heart. That's the causal core of our being. That's what motivates every person. And so he gives us wisdom so that as he begins to work that wisdom in our very causal core of our being, our inner being, our desires begin to transform and conform to the law of God. And that wisdom is grounded in what we know full bloom as the gospel. Notice in verse 7. I think that's why you see verse 7 following off the heels of verse 6. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. It's just interesting. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And all of a sudden, he goes immediately to this prayer, purge me with hyssop. And I think verse 7 is especially important. Because it answers the question that every sinner should ask. How can a holy God show mercy to guilty sinners? Now this word uh, purge in verse 7 is interesting. It's based on the word for sin. And literally, you could translate this, descend me. Descend me. Purge me with hyssop. Now what in the world is he referring to that? where hyssop was a small plant, and scholars say that it, it, it evidently looked a lot like broccoli. So you got this bushy end to a stem, right? And so the hyssop looked like broccoli. And in the ceremonial systems, it was used as a small brush. It was used to sprinkle blood. The first time we see uh, this term hyssop was the night of the Passover. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, here was the command. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood. So when the angel of death passed over and he saw the blood, the firstborn son of that home would not die. It was also used in the cleansing of those who have been made unclean by touching corpses, dead bodies. Numbers 19, verse 18. It was also used to sprinkle on those who had been healed of infectious skin diseases like leprosy. You read about that in Numbers 14. In fact, in that ritual, you had two live birds. And the first bird they would put to death and so the, they would take the hyssop plant and they would dip that hyssop plant in the blood of that bird that was put to death. And then they would, they would sprinkle that blood on the cleansed leper or on the healed leper to cleanse him. Then they would take the other live bird and, and they would sprinkle blood on that live bird and they would let him fly off. And he would fly off never to be seen again. It almost reminds you of the Day of Atonement. So you have one bird that dies in the place of the leper, and the other, the bird flies off, never to be seen again. Propitiation, God's wrath satisfied, and then the sins, the guilt expiated. 
It was a way of cleansing. It symbolized that. And then the rite concluded with the, with the former lepers washing his body with a cloth. Just as David prays here, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Of course, the writer of Hebrews recognized what the hyssop represented in chapter 9, verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. That's when the old covenant was ratified. It was inaugurated. And David knew all this. And so when he asked that God purge him with hyssop, he meant Cleanse me by the blood on the basis of the substitute who dies in my place. I will be purged. I will be cleansed. With that said, this is not where the life of faith begins, or it's not where it ends. It's just where it begins. Notice in verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. In other words, on the basis of the blood of the substitute, verse 7, do these things. And I think it's interesting that David here, he, his prayer implies all the blessings that are lost by sin. We lose our purity, and we lose our joy. We lose our gladness of heart. He says in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Then he says, blot out my iniquities. David is using a metaphor that would have been well known in that culture. In the ancient Near East, there were these ancient manuscripts called plimpsests. And, and, and they were pieces of papyrus that at one time contained these texts, you know, that you would write on. But when these texts were no longer needed, someone would come, and the material was so expensive they couldn't just throw it away. Someone would write out the old writing, or rub it out, rub out the old, blot out the old writing, and, and then they would write new words on it. I think that's what David's getting at here. It's a great illustration of what he's getting at here. This is what David needed and every sinner needs. Because the book of our lives have a text on it, and every text on that, in that book are the sins that we've committed, so to speak. And every sin is worthy of judgment. And unless someone intervenes, and these words will be read against us in the day of judgment. But by the blood, by the blood of the substitute, God rubs out, he blots out that those old words against us, and he writes new words on them, clean, righteous, justified, forgiven. But again, this is only the beginning for David. He's aware that a central problem for him is that this transgression that he's committed sprang from a sinful heart that needs purifying. That brings us to the next part of this text in verse 10, a yearning for purity. Notice in verse 10, create in me 
a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is a man who's doing business with God. And so the prayer for pardon is complete, but unless something is done within his heart, the future will repeat the past. You know people like that? They seem to confess and repent, but then the future just continues to be a repeat of the past. So this is a remarkable plea from David. Create in me a clean heart. Now that word create is very insightful. It's the word bara. It's used in Genesis 1, where it says that God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, every time this verb is used in the Hebrew, God is always the subject of the verb. David is asking God to do what only he can do. He is asking God to work a miracle. David knew with the Apostle Paul, long before the Apostle Paul, that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. And so if David's heart was to be purified, it had to be a creation from nothing. Ex nihilo, if you will. Because anything already in David was contaminated by sin. Notice in verse 11, he he continues with this desperate plea. He says, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, what does he mean here? Does David concerned about losing his salvation? No. Aside from the saving work of the Holy Spirit in in the Old Testament and his empowering believers to live lives glorifying to God, the Holy Spirit would also anoint particular persons for particular tasks in the covenant community. So he would anoint prophets and he would anoint priests and kings and administrators and craftsmen. And I believe David has that in mind. He had seen that the Spirit had departed from Saul because every time Samuel commanded Saul to do something, Saul would disobey God. And so finally, the Spirit left Saul in that regard. David is praying that God would not withdraw his anointing so that he would be equipped, so that he could continue to be equipped as Israel's king. But in Hebrews 13, 17, as it makes clear, to lead without joy is of no advantage to anyone. So notice in verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Isn't this a wonderful prayer? Sin eclipses our capacity for joy. Restore unto me the joy. This isn't restore my salvation. It's restore the joy which sin destroys. And as important as that, he said, uphold me with a, with a willing spirit, or you could translate that established spirit. And I want you to note the tension here. It's the Lord who upholds us, but it's with a renewed spirit that we have within us that begins to will God's will. Okay? So David knows that at any given moment, we always do that which we most desire to do. We're controlled by our affections by our spirits, by our wills. It's the causal core of our being. 
And in 2 Samuel 11, it's clear at this point that he's not been nurturing his spirit. He's not been nurturing the immaterial part of himself. It's been neglected. And so he's asking the Lord to nurture his spirit. It's a very important prayer for us all. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Create in me new desires that will push out and crowd out the old rebellious desires. And notice the goal. The goal is for proclamation. Notice in verse 13. Then, then, when you do this, I will teach transgressors your ways. And by the way, that prayer was answered. We still have Psalm 51 that has been read and meditated upon for 3,000 years, teaching sinners their way, uh, your, uh, God's ways. And sinners will return to you. Sinners have been returning back to Yahweh, the Lord, for 3,000 years because God answered this prayer. And notice he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And so all of the aforementioned prayers that David has been praying in this psalm are leading up to this. And yet, verse 14 makes clear that the heinousness of his sin continues to horrify David. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He has been delivered. Sometimes once you've been delivered, you still got to bring it to the Lord because there's those phantom guilts that arise. He has been delivered, and yet he continues to humble himself before God. He knew that the wages of killing someone, murdering someone, was death. That's what he deserved. In fact, nowhere in the psalm is David concerned to escape the material consequences of his sin. It's his blood guilt that burdens him. His sin is more odious to him than the punishment. That's, where, that's repentance right there. When your sin is more odious to you than the punishment that's coming, you know that you are repentant. When our sin, I think this is very important for us, when our sin is more odious to us than anything else, we'll be more concerned with that than we are other people's sins. That is a good thermometer for us. When our sin is more odious, odious to us than anything else, we'll be more concerned with our sin than anyone else's sins, including the sins of politicians. But this deliverance here, notice, it frees the tongue. He says, my tongue will sing loud of your righteousness when you do this. So verses 13 and 14, notice. You restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You deliver me from blood guiltiness. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and I will sing aloud of your righteousness. Now, in the context, he says, O God of my salvation, the context is clear. David is saying that if you will do this, and God does do that, 
I'm going to teach sinners how to be made right with you. Because it's one of the real dilemmas of Scripture. The, the dilemma of Scripture, the question of Scripture is not how a sinner can go to hell. It's how a sinner can be made right with God. That is the question. And that's what David is referring to here. I will teach people of your righteousness. I will teach people of your ways. Because righteousness demands justice. So how could God pardon sinners when righteousness demands justice? Well, David again recognizes it comes through the blood. It comes through the substitute. He is fixated on the substitute that dies in his place. Purge me with this hyssop. And, the, and David here is concerned that the Lord open his lips that, because they have been closed by shame. Oftentimes the reason we refuse to speak about the, the gospel or the things of God is because we're living in shame. We're living in unresolved guilt. We're living in unconfessed sin. But notice as well as he closes this out, verses 15 to 17, he has this longing for praise. Oh Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. Again, these lips were closed by sin. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. In other words, a religious activity. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and incontrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. High-handed sins close our mouths. They shame us into silence. And David wants his lips opened again to declare God's praise. But it won't happen merely by his religious hoops that he jumps through. It will only come with a heart that has been broken over its sin, a heart that realizes how little it deserves and how much it actually has received. Of course, verse 7 makes clear the need for sacrifice. Even the language of purging and, and cleansing, all of that came through sacrifice in the law. But for the one whose spirit is not broken over their sin, there's no sacrifice. There's no sacrifice that remains. Isn't that the point the Hebrews makes? Even the sacrifice of Christ will not benefit someone who's not repentant, someone who's not broken over their sins. And David is showing us what brokenness is, isn't he? It's when you stop pointing fingers at anything and everyone else and you say it is against you and you that I have sinned, my sin. David now has this broken spirit. He's showing us what it is. And it's come in part because of the damage that he has caused. He closes out this chapter with this burden for his people because he's caused damage to his people. Notice in verse 18, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He seems to be very sensitive to the effect that he's had on his people. He wants the Jerusalem that he had torn down by his sin to be rebuilt and this is such a word for moms who feel like they've broken the lamp and dads. It all began with confession and repentance and pleading the blood of the substitute to resolve 
the guilt. Isn't that a good word? No matter what you've done. David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. And he spent a year without repentance. And yet, when he humbled himself and he confessed his sin and, and he repented of his sin and he, and, he, and he trusted in the substitute, the blood of the substitute, his guilt was resolved. Pastor Harold Sinkbell in his book, The Care of Souls, he tells of a conversation that he had one time in a small group. One of the women in that small group was a psychologist named Samantha. And in the middle of the discussion, he was speaking about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one in whom this hyssop points, right? And he said that Jesus Christ was, is fully God and fully man in one person. And, and this, this Christ came and he died as our substitute. He, he died on the cross for sinners. He took the judgment for adulterers. He took the judgment for murderers. He took the judgment for those who've had an abortion. He took the judgment for those who committed sexual immorality and every other sin. And God raised him from the grave. And, and, and he could tell that this psychologist was getting very antsy. And then he began to speak of the great exchange that when you trust in Jesus, when you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus, what happens is this great exchange, your guilt, your transgressions, are credited to him as he took the cross and his righteousness is credited to you so that you stand forgiven in God's sight. And then that's when she, that is the psychologist Samantha, interrupted him. And here's what she said. Do you realize that if what you're saying about guilt and forgiveness is all true, we could empty many of the beds in our mental hospitals? The psychologists recognize that much of the mental illness in our culture is due to unresolved guilt. How do you deal with the guilt? How do you deal with the shame of breaking the lamp and hiding it and living in that if it's all true? And David is saying to Samantha, and he's saying to you, it's all true. It's all true, and it set him free from the guilt. And it was the mainspring for his joy, his prayer, and his praise, and for the restoration, the renewal of that right spirit and joy within him. And that is David's word to every mother who's broken the lamp today and for every other person who has broken that lamp. It's a word to us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 51. We pray that wherever people are spiritually, that this would be a word to them. For those who are forgiven, but still struggle with guilt, we pray that Psalm 51 would show them that that guilt has been resolved in the one in whom this hyssop points, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for those who've never had their guilt addressed because they've never trusted in your substitute for sin. We pray today, even on this Mother's Day, many would come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We pray that you'd show them their sin and their need for a Savior 
And we pray that you would draw them in by your spirit to the Christ where they can have their sins forgiven for all time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the you guys have joined us uh, over whatever device. We're grateful for that means of grace so that we can still uh, have a church service of some kind. But we look forward to being back together sooner than later. Uh, if you are a visitor and you've kind of dropped into and viewed this service and you're not familiar with First Baptist Church of Fisherville, Kentucky, we invite you to uh, come find us online, send us a message on 
email or Facebook or reach out in some ways if you have questions about the church, about the Lord, about uh, what Pastor Brian had preached this morning. But um, we uh, feel free to do that. We love to hear from people. And if you have prayer requests, feel free to send those in. Um, we still would love to hear from you, uh, however, however, by whatever means we have. All right. Um, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's end how we began with um, um, going to the Lord and just asking Him to, to bless and to serve the rest of this day. We would take what we have heard today, particularly from Psalm 51, and it would sit with us and really ask the, the Lord for it to bear fruit in our life. His word never returns void. And I pray that we would not, it will not do so today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and um, once again, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for the faithful preaching of it this morning. Uh, Lord, it's, it's unfathomable to think how David's sin uh, was so grievous, and yet Psalm 51 is a word of confession that's been heralded by, by all believers in one way, shape, form, or another for the last 3,000 years we find those words um, so often on our own lips and frequently need to be so because we consistently need to be a, in a continual posture of, of repenting and believing, uh, not for salvation again, but in the sanctifi sanctification process as we are progressively conformed to the image of Christ. We need to constantly be confessing and believing again what we know to be true, and we know you are true. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the message of Psalm 51 today. I pray that it would take root in our hearts and bear fruit of righteousness. And we ask all of these things through Christ, we pray. Amen. Once again, happy Mother's Day. You're dismissed.